This is The New Right, a podcast for the lost arts, reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. This is Matt Pegas. And this is Dan Baltic. And we're here today with Zero HP Lovecraft. Uh, he is a writer who needs no introduction, a Twitter thread maestro, uh, sort of the uncrowned king of frog Twitter, I would say, now that I don't know if that's a I don't know if that's a title he would take upon himself, but now that at Bronze Age Mantis has fallen, um, zero or HP, ascended, or ascended, uh, <laughs> you know, perhaps zero HP uh, is is pretty much pretty much at the top of the game for Frog Twitter. Um, he, but more importantly, and why we have him on today is that he is a, a writer. Uh, he wrote uh, the Gig Economy. Uh, he, he, you know, you've been writing for three, four years now, zero, uh, starting with Gig Economy um, back in 2018, uh, famously wrote God-Shaped Hole, um, more recently, um, Don't Make Me Think, uh, you are an experimenter with different uh, forms and different, uh, uh, you know, incorporating different elements into your work, uh, Don't Make Me Think famously uh, utilizes emojis extensively, God-Shaped Hole has these labyrinthine um footnotes and links um gig economy incorporates a lot of screenshots from twitter and 4chan uh, i just say this in case any of our listeners are, are not familiar with your writing uh to give them an idea um that you are you know basically a what would you say science fiction and horror writer and um as well as an experimenter with the medium i i would say that's an accurate characterization of my work I'm always looking for new ways to use the digital and the, the internet and the web formats because I think it's, it's actually very hard to do. It's hard to do something that feels native to the web that kind of delinearizes it and actually makes use of all these tools. And I think we've only really scratched the surface of that. You get video games, which are sort yeah. of leaning into, leaning towards a fully immersive narrative experience, but they become too caught up in all of the little loops and, and contrivances of the video game itself. They become too much game, not enough story. But then when you look at the experimental games that focus on story, they're also very lacking, in my opinion. Yeah, no, that's interesting. It's something I really appreciate about, about your writing is that you're trying to kind of push the medium forward into new territory. <laughs> Um, you know, and, and traditional stories that don't experiment are all well and good, but there's something about, you know, the fact that we're all very online, you're a very online writer, um, you know, famous kind of first as a Twitter user, 
So it's interesting to see uh, that rather than having fiction be some kind of space outside of that, um, it seems that you're both in terms of, again, the medium and the elements you incorporate, but also very much in terms of plot and the themes you deal with, um, you're always um, allowing the this digital world we inhabit um, to, to enmesh your stories and you confront the both the problems and also just kind of the silly little things that that being online means uh, constantly in your work. Um, and I think it's one of the things that uh, gives it a lot of value and will, you know, it, it's it, it will make it something that I, I do think people will read in the future because um, it's it's very it, it tackles the issues and just the what's the word, just the, the fabric uh, of its time in, in an interesting way. I've been thinking a lot lately, you know, about what to write next. So some some viewers may be familiar with the Passage Prize, which I think um, was kind of a big event early Absolutely. this year. And that was a very educational experience for me. And I think I've, I've commented on it. I've talked about it a little bit elsewhere. But in some ways, I'm still processing like what, what that meant. It's very... Um, yeah. There's so much data there. I literally read over 400 stories of like by yes. other people in this space. And in some cases, and I, I don't mean to sound like some people may think this sounds arrogant and I don't mean it that way, but many of these writers actually look up to me in some sense, I think. And that's, mm -hmm. that's quite apparent when you read what themes they choose and what narrative devices they choose and so on. Right. And so seeing that reflection almost not just of my work but how how those ideas are present in like the larger culture of, of fraud twitter it gives me a lot of pause and it makes me think about you know in a sense what's left to say uh, on on some of these themes on some of these themes because like we all get it the internet it. depersonalizes you and derealizes you and it enables these um sort of strange forms of mob tyranny to start to pull you this way and that. And you become uh, a very, very moralistic, but also performatively moralistic person. So, you know, you can kind of endlessly walk back and forth in that rut of like, okay, uh, I, I find this digital niche bacteria grow there in the form of these like moralistic mobs and then they crucify me. Mm -hmm. And that's like, that's a story that happens a billion times. We see it every three days on Twitter. And I think it's, people are aware of that problem. Tucker Carlson is aware of that problem at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, most normie cons, anyone <clears throat> watching Fox News knows that. Do we need to shine another light on that? I'm not saying don't, but to me, I'd like to move on a little. Yeah, no, there, there. I mean, I didn't read uh, obviously uh, all of those passage prize submissions, but it was actually it was on our list of questions to ask uh, you today. Uh, what that experience was like, because you've probably, we, you know, on this pod we talk about cultivating, you know, the literary scene that we're part of in our corner of Twitter, and I think pr with with really beyond a shadow of a doubt, you have read more work from this corner of Twitter now post passage prize than anyone probably like 10 or 20 times over, um, which gives you 
you know, pretty unique insight into, you know, what what our guys are thinking about, so to speak. And, um, you know, what 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 are the themes uh, that they keep coming back to? And, and you've already answered the question, uh, which is it basically this this theme of of the Internet and the potential evil lurking in the Internet um, is, is very much is very is, was very much the focus on a lot of the submissions. I would say so. I mean, I, I sort of mentally put them in a few different categories because there was a lot of that. There was a lot of kind of uh, what I call pod life stories or eat the bug stories. Yeah. And I mean, it wasn't even that many. I think if you, if you, the numerator of that was probably on the order of 30 or 40 out of 400. So it's less than 10%, but it's still probably the single largest category. Uh, of, of the submissions also that are, that are even, you know, really worth dwelling on. Like a lot, a lot of people yeah, yeah. Uh, tried and I respect them for trying. And I think, you know, everyone accomplished something just by like putting something on paper, going through the motion of submitting. That really, that is, it can be personally a big deal, even if the work itself is not a big deal, if that makes sense. And yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, I, um, you know, I, I wrote a novel that not a ton of people have read, but like, I think definitely getting the work out there as kind of lib and psychiatric or, or psychological counselor as it might sound, I think that there is something very therapeutic and good about just writing. So I definitely don't think, you know, I think it's good. I think it's a really great sign that so many people submitted stories, even if, you know, most of them aren't going to make it into the, the final work. Um, it's it's a sign of health in a way for our scene that there's this many people who want to write creatively. Right. Um, but but yeah, I, I'm I'm not surprised that 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 uh, pod living uh, was kind of a recurring theme. Uh, Dan and I had to ask you uh, like, do you think? I mean, is that that could just be partially the after effects of COVID, right, or the the lockdowns? Um, maybe that's just kind of what's on people's mind. Yeah, COVID, COVID made pod life very salient to a lot of people. I, I think that's absolutely true. But it's also just, um, it's just like a very obvious projection. Like you see all these things going on, whether it's completely astroturfed uh, media blitz to try to get people to eat more insects. Now, I don't know, you've probably mm-hmm. seen the current thing is that all of these food yeah. uh, processing plants are being burned, arson, there was a plane crash into one, boiler explosion, just far too many to be coincidences that happened in the last few days. This is like... A, I just tweeted about yeah. that, actually. I mm. said the seed oil revolution is upon us because <laughs> they crashed into General Mills. To, I mean, <laughs> is someone trying to start a food shortage or is this actually like anti-xenoestrogen activism? I sort of hope it's not, but maybe it's based to destroy a potato chip factory. Uh, please do not commit any violence to anyone who listens to me. Ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, well, I think any any scene is going to have their recurring themes, and the same way that if you had some woke writing competition, I'm pretty sure probably more than 10% of the stories would be these kind of identity-laden, here is my trauma, this is why it's Whitey's oh, fault yeah. I mean, type stories. Look at the young adult novels, and it's like, we almost couldn't parody the things that they're publishing. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd say uh, there's so many criticisms one could make uh, of, of woke stuff, but, but, but honestly, one of them that even transcends merely political concerns is that it's incredibly 
repetitive. Uh, and the, the, the whole economy and that creative field has been created around like um, sort of pimping out your your trauma and your your like yeah d d trauma porn and identity porn basically. So compared to that, if we have uh, about ten percent of submissions to Passage Prize were about the same sort of speculative pod living scenario. We're not doing too badly if that's if that's ten percent plus. I'm sure a lot of those stories, uh, as repetitive as maybe they would get after a while, I'm sure a lot of them are are good as well. So yeah, I think a lot of people also wrote, and this was across every every category of of, of story that I saw. Many people are just they're really writing television scripts or movie scripts, and mm -hmm. I don't necessarily discourage this. Like there's a place for that, and I think it'd be amazing to see more of our guys having an influence and a presence in film. But it's just, it's so much you know, bigger and more expensive and more complicated and none of it can be done anonymously. It's very hard to make a film anonymously, basically impossible. Yeah, oh yeah. So you see a lot of that. A lot of people who I think they're more comfortable or more, uh, more inclined towards like the medium of television or movies. And to me, this is always a little bit of a mismatch for a writing competition but that's also my own like pretension as, as someone who's more interested in the literary no i hear you i mean i'm someone who's delved in both like um screen writing and novelistic writing um or not not novel you know what i mean prose writing um and yeah i i do think there is a significant difference i think both are mm -hmm. are you know good forms of writing but i do think there's a kind of stripped down screenwriting or screenwriting style that um you know can really showcase a person's imagination uh, and perhaps even their visual imagination but i think like the type of writing that you do for example um is 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 very much a cut above that because <clears throat> you create you know and uh, you specifically because your your work is in this kind of borgesian or or obviously lovecraftian which we'll get into uh space where it very much sort of opens up these whole world it like creates its own mythos and opens up these vast uh the word that always comes to me as with Borges is labyrinthine um you know you you create these worlds um which is very much a feat of a certain kind of prose right you know there's stuff you can do with prose writing that you can't do obviously when you're just kind of dictating yeah. like a, a movie you're seeing in your head so to speak well i think crucially with prose writing you have potentially complete control over the manuscript you have complete control over that world whereas with screenwriting you are writing something that a director is going to take is going to cut from is going to adapt and and the actors will interpret the lines as well so, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I, I've written a novel also and why I love prose writing is you are, you're the god when you are writing prose. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, you hear people say, uh, become ungovernable. This is a meme you see all the time. And I think as a writer, my goal is to become unfilmable. I just, I want things <laughs> to be captured uh, in that medium. Yeah, I mean, I'm it's trying to think what the... It's always an interesting question with any writer, I think. What would the Zero HP Lovecraft movie look like? And I think... Yeah, I think it's basically unfilmable. I think 
my initial thought would be, I mean, there's a reason there's never been like a Borges or, or even real. I mean, yeah, there's the reason there's never been a Borges movie. There's never been a good Lovecraft, um, interpretation on film. I don't think, um, they made a show called Lovecraft country, which seemed woke and horrific. I don't know if you saw that. I, I <laughs> myself. Anyhow, that, but you know, there is one Lovecraft movie, which I think is almost perfectly true to his vision. Ironically, because it has nothing in common with the original text. And this is a movie made in 1985 called Reanimator. So this movie hmm. is based, well, actually, it's really not based. It's very, very loosely based on Herbert West, uh, Reanimator. And it's a fairly typical Lovecraft story about a man who's using uh, science it's really more of a science fiction story, and he's injecting corpses with various concoctions to bring them back to life. And the story is measured, and it's not really bombastic at all. And they turned it into just an 80s camp film, going with that premise, with like singing, dancing skeletons and Euro disco. And although it has nothing in common with like the, the cosmic horror of Lovecraft, my cosmic horror, when I watched this movie, almost perfectly <laughs> captured the emotion. Yeah. I think that's what it'd have to be, is is kind of some sort of outside-the-box encapsulation of of the spirit of, of Lovecraft's work or of your work, because, yeah, textually, you're not going to capture that on so, camera. Um, though it'd be interesting to see someone try, but it would actually a more, a more happen. serious answer, answer to that question is you've probably seen John Carpenter's The Thing in 1982. Now, yeah. That is a true Lovecraftian story, despite not being written by For Lovecraft. Sure. But it deals very much with the themes of the outside, uh, something that really can't be quite articulated or comprehended by human uh, intellect. So I think I think that gets better right. closer than anything that's based on his work. And bonus, there are no women in this movie. Ah, yeah, I know. That's <laughs> always a, a good sign. <laughs> um, Event Horizon, also very Lovecraftian. I enjoyed that one quite a bit. Yeah, I heard you, I think on a different podcast, maybe Aaron uh, McIntyre uh, described that as pretty. And I know that you're, you, you've, of, you've often said that you're not the connoisseur of horror that some, some might think you are, but you obviously do have some thoughts. And I've, I heard you say that that kind of horror that you just described as being contained in John Carpenter's The Thing, and by extension also Lovecraftian horror, is a sort of right-wing horror because it deals so squarely with the notion of something from the outside. And in the case of Lovecraft, in the case of The Thing, it's something very much outside, perhaps even something from another dimension, um, as is also the case in your work. It deals with something outside, you know, the, the the fear comes from something outside coming in, something invading. Um, you've you've described that as a certain right wing horror, so to speak. Um, I guess I'm just asking if that uh, if that resonates, and if that's kind of one of the the reasons you identify with Lovecraft as both a a horror writer and as a right winger. Yes, I mean, so I I really, and I've told people this before. I really did take this name as a joke. Like, it's just, it's a funny before and after, right? He's Lovecraft, but with zero mm-hmm. points. That's, that's really the idea. Yeah. And people sort of imagine that, oh, you named yourself after Lovecraft. You must be some, like, deep, deep uh, aficionado of his work. I, I really like Lovecraft stories. I've read most of them. 
I think, um, and a few of his letters. But I know three or four people who've gone way deeper on that. Uh, I yeah. Yeah, he's. Mm-hmm. He's one of those writers that there, it's. He's one of those writers that it seems like there's always a bigger aficionado out there somewhere. <laughs> there's always someone who's read all the letters I do, and. I do really uh, admire his mysticism. Uh, you know, absolutely. He kept a dream journal, which isn't that uncommon to do, but he he kept a dream journal and he would always try to draw from his dreams and the things he'd seen in his stories. So some of his stories are very short, and many of them do have this dreamlike affect where you can tell he yeah. saw this in his sleep, and he was very sort of in tune with those those imageries. Uh, I have been taking a lot of glycine lately, which gives me very vivid dreams. But I'm, hmm, I'm that sounds for those Lovecraftian moments, and I don't think I'm doing a good job of finding them yet. <laughs> yeah, it, it may, I can imagine it's a bit of a spirit quest and a challenge. Uh, this is was not on our, 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 our outline, but I just thought of it now in, in how you were describing... Um, Lovecraft. I'm not sure if you've spoke. I mean, you probably have because you've spoken a lot in a lot of places about a lot of things. But are you a David Lynch fan? A little bit. I, I can't say that I've seen all of his movies, uh, and some of them don't maybe resonate with me quite as much. Not that I dislike them. I am a huge fan of Blue Velvet. I think that's mm-hmm. one of my favorite movies that I've ever seen, and uh, the, the character played by Dennis Hopper. Just uh, an incredibly memorable, memorable villain. So I really like that quite a bit. For sure. Yeah. No, I just brought Lynch up. It's funny, we were just talking about Dennis Hopper on our last episode with Howling Mutant, so a little synchronicity there. But uh, yeah, I just bring it up because I think Lynch also falls under that category of someone who kind of starts from a place of mysticism or even literally his own dreams and lays them out. Um. But uh, on that note, I definitely wanted to ask, I have a number of sort of philosophic, maybe philosophic is the wrong word, a number of uh, sort of headier questions uh, dealing dealing with mysticism to some extent um, that I wanted to ask. Uh, one, one, one thing that I really, really struck me kind of reading and rereading your work in prep for, for the conversation today, and I know you've talked about this elsewhere, uh, is both that you're influenced by Lovecraft, but perhaps even more strongly influenced by Borges. Um, I, I reread uh, The Gig Economy in prep for today's episode and was really struck. You've, you've said that this, this the structure of that story is sort of like the Call of Thulu, the Lovecraft story, and that you have a, you know, a, a, a protagonist who... Um, you know, begins to slowly research a topic and slowly but surely finds that there's some broader conspiracy behind it. And then there's a somewhat horrifying conclusion. That's all very Lovecraftian. But then the part in the middle, which obviously ties in with the end as well, where where the protagonist um, basically uncovers this old book, uh, which predicts the gig economy that the story is about, the day job. Uh, you know, people who haven't read the story should, but basically the story is about people who complete these inscrutable, bizarre, ta- like neat type people who um, complete these strange tasks through um, through like an app or through Reddit or something where they're uh, earning little bits of money to do inscrutable tasks. Um, and, and then in, in the gig economy, 
your protagonist finds that um, there's this ancient book which sort of predicted the economy that would later build up around this very online uh, economic reality. Um, that is all very the, the book element um, struck me as being straight out straight out of Borges and straight out of um, the Tlan Akbar story. Um, so I guess the question I had in mind, uh, or I guess more of a comment, uh, is that you sort of thread the needle between Borges and Lovecraft very well. There, I don't know how often they've been written about in the same sentence as being similar, but um, to me, my impression, and I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, my impression is that uh, Borges and Lovecraft have quite a bit in common in that even though one is a horror writer and one is a writer of a much more... I, I don't even know how you describe Borges, but he's not a horror writer. He's he's more neutral in, in what he presents. He's not trying to scare us, per se. He's, he's philosophical um, I, I think very metaphysical. With Borges, he, he talks definitely. a little bit in a few places of what he calls a sacred terror. So a sacred terror is... Hmm. is the fear of God, in a way, not not the fear. Now, the fear of God—that's an interesting phrase. When we talk about the fear of God, yeah. we don't mean a visceral, like horror movie horror, right? It's not—it's not the fear that you feel when your life is threatened by a monster or a serial killer or something like that. The fear of God is a very slow and subtle and all-pervading fear. It's the fear that you feel when you walk into maybe a giant cathedral and you hear the echoes and you see the ceiling is so right. far away and this sense of space arrests you and gives you a sense of transport and that is in some ways a terrifying feeling that's i think yes maybe the, the easiest way to explain sacred terror and many of Borges' works yeah this and many of lovecraft's works contain it as well maybe yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, go on. A story written by Borges called There Are More Things. This was actually meant as an homage to Lovecraft, and it was Borges's attempt to write a short Lovecraftian story. And it's very interesting to see mm. how he handles the tropes. In my opinion, not, not with perfect uh, alacrity, not maybe as well as he could have, but I've read that Borges always had a sort of romantic, uh, not not rivalry, but maybe you could say a wistfulness for the idea of being a pulp writer, like he, because he was not any such thing. He was a highbrow, you know, modernist writer, but he sort of had this fantasy of what if I wrote pulp? That's what I've heard. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. No, I haven't read that Borges story, but I would like to check it out um, because... And again, I guess maybe that's the the connective tissue is that Borges was in fact influenced by Lovecraft to some extent. But um, yeah, they, they strike me as very different because again, I think Borges is mostly writing about that sacred terror, that neutral or even positive terror, whereas Lovecraft is obviously writing about horrific terror. Uh, but there, but nevertheless, you know, maybe there's some overlap between those two things and both of them. And this is also how one of the ways I would describe your work, both of them open up these whole entire worlds and dimensions uh, with their writing. So I think there really is 
something aesthetically similar about them, even if the genre is technically a bit uh, different. And the way I would describe that maybe a little bit too reductively is that it, it's the aesthetics of mystery. Um, it is, the, the, their work is inflected with, with, with a sense of mystery, a sense of horrific mystery for the most part in the case of Lovecraft. And it's, I think a, sac uh, a sense of sacred mystery in, uh, in the work of Borges. Um, from I have not read all of your work, Zero, but from what I've read, uh, you know, you're, seem a little more on the Lovecraftian side of that equation. You you write about very horrifying conspiracies and mysteries and and you know sort of satanic influence behind things. Um, but I guess uh, if I can ask this question without sounding gay. Um, you know, the question is like, do you believe there are actually, regardless of if you believe, cause it's not, it's not necessarily about what you believe in your personal life, but could you imagine writing about beautiful mysteries or that sacred terror? Um, cause I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of, a lot of what you've written about is about something very bad lurking behind things. But could you imagine yourself writing about something a little more Borgesian, something, good or some kind of godly sacred terror behind it. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, well, so in my opinion, it's much harder to write such a thing. Actually, it's, it's much more difficult. Mm -hmm. And there are there are elements of a real uh, negative terror, you could say, in Borges. I think most of all, of the story yeah. of uh, the Blue Tigers, or maybe well, in the Blue Tigers, he, he finds a collection of stones, which are without number. That is, the number is completely uh, dynamic. Every time he looks at them, every time he counts them, every time he tries to weigh them, they're always different. They're always changing. And this is a theme you see in a number of Borges' works. Also, in uh, the Book of Sand is about a book of... Where of infinite middle, it has no beginning and no end. Every time you turn to open it, you turn to a different page. You can never find the same page twice. Uh, and so the book, the, uh, the Blue Tigers, and there's a number of other stories on this theme, they all explore the idea of the info hazard, which is a piece of knowledge that sort of breaks your mind because it ruins your ability to believe in anything rational, in anything logical, in a, a consistency to the world. And this is another sort of point of commonality between Lovecraft and Borges is that, so in, in Lovecraft, it's almost become a joke. It's like, well, if I saw an unnameable cosmic horror, I would just comprehend it. And I've seen this tweet be like numbers a couple of times, people will say that. And it's like, oh yeah, just comprehend the cosmic horror, sure. But, and that's funny. <laughs> but, if you really take the idea seriously of something that actually is comprehensible, incomprehensible, something that really breaks your mind, it's very hard to give that vision. And I, I think you do find that in both places. As far as like writing about those beautiful, beautiful horrors, I think maybe that's a lifelong quest for me. But it's very easy to find yeah. all these dark and awful things around us. And my what I will say, again, at the risk of sounding pretentious, is that I try to arrive at those things via negativa. That is, I don't know if you can really name yeah. the, the beautiful and the good, uh, but you can say a lot of things about what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think even Lovecraft, um, I get that a little bit. I mean, maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm looking for something that's not there, but... 
um, uh, as a fan of Lovecraft, they're they're almost. I find it perversely comforting um, sometimes to delve into that depth of of darkness, because uh, I think probably for the reason you said, um, if you, it, it's hard to name. Let's just say you know it's hard to name God. It's hard to name the divine. Um, but you know, I am someone who believes in some version of the divine that I don't think I can name. Um, so if I'm not going to name what it is, naming what it's not, or naming uh, naming the god-shaped hole, shall we say? <laughs> uh, naming naming the counterfeit things that it isn't can be a way of yeah of gaining some kind of understanding. I think that is kind of a sort of esoteric interpretation of like the what could be the positive upshot of a certain kind of horror absolutely yeah no that's interesting stuff i mean i, I think um there is this interesting i don't want to use the word dialectical because i hate that but like um there is this kind of interesting slippage when we're dealing with the notion of terror is it the sacred terror or is it the profane terror is it the actual terror um the there is this kind of weird relationship between um yeah both the fear of god and i don't know the fear of satan or the fear of of of, of you know actually bad things um you can kind of speak about both at the same time um in, in a sort of interesting way um you, you write about the King James Bible as kind of one of the foundational works in Western literature um, as kind of this this um, act of, like, I don't want to say myth-making because that sounds too inherently atheistic, but uh, you've basically written about it as like one of the one of the founding texts in the in the Western canon and and sort of this this text through which a lot of our, you know, naps of meaning to put it as Jordan Peterson might um, are, are rendered. And I think uh, I'm, I'm speaking to abstraction here, but I'm going to go for it. There's something to that notion of, of myth, myth making. Um, and in Welbeck's book about Lovecraft, you know, he describes him as a purveyor of myth as well. Um, there's something about that notion of what, uh, when you're dealing with, when you're writing literature that has that character, that, that, that profound character, um, of, uh, of like prophecy and of like, you're kind of trying to describe the world in as big a picture way as you can, uh, where, uh, you end up dealing, um, with, with, with both kinds of terror, I guess, some, some kind of fundamental, uh, notion of terror. I'm kind of rambling here, but does that resonate yeah, at all? Um, so the King James Bible is really one of my favorite things to read. And I, I read it often, and I think that the language therein is incredibly beautiful. Even, even if you completely disregard sort of the narrative level, which I don't endorse doing, but even if you just look at the language of it, it is worded, it is written so wonderfully. And partly this may be an artifact of just that it's old and it, it exists within older modalities of, of writing. But there's also this kind of strange uh, otherworldly quality to it because it tried to preserve in some cases a, uh, the, the Greek phrasing in the New Testament, for example. And so there are terms of phrase that aren't really native to English, that aren't 
they're actually more native to Greek, but they've been reflected mm-hmm. for in maybe a non-standard way. And it just gives it this very, uh, <clears throat> this very otherworldly quality. So I find it, um, it's always just a joy to read from the King James Bible. And when you, I think it should be read slowly. I think, you know, um, it's funny enough, most people would probably not care for an anecdote about Christopher Hitchens, but I always uh, sort of envy him because he got to place mm-hmm. uh, in the library in Argentina and Borges <laughs> demanded, yeah. maybe not demanded, but he requested, he said, you know, because Borges was blind, he said, could you read to me from Kipling? I am blind, I can't read it myself. And so he did. And uh, Borges said to Christopher Hitchens, he said, no, 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 too fast. I need smaller sips. I need smaller sips. Mm-hmm. And so I will read just a little bit, a little bit at a time, and try to let those words really uh, wash over me. Because I think, whether we, you have to have something to say as a writer, you have to have, um, you know, real convictions and, and propositions underlying your work. Otherwise, you're just sort of making noise. But also, I am incredibly concerned with the beauty of language and with each sentence, really. I, know, I, I think you have to be a lover of words and the way that they fit together and the way that they sound in your mind. Um, otherwise, what's the point? Like, I'm mm-hmm. very, very concerned with the surface layer of the text, the language layer. Yeah, I, I tend to think that people who brag about how fast they read or how many books they can read, it's, it's such a mid kind of way to brag because, at, at least for me, I find that I really, I'll, if I want to get what I want out of a book, I have to focus on it. And that takes time to parse the language, to really, really read it. And to kind of, like... I mean, it's great if you can assimilate all of that very quickly, but I would say that that's that's pretty rare. And like generally, if you want to get real, um, you know, you really want to get something out of a text, you have to spend time reading it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, no, and I think especially in terms of reading reading the Bible, and I admit I don't. I think my copy of the Bible is not the King James version, so I should probably. I don't know. I, I gather King James is is the the one that's the most obviously the most respected by U zero, but also in general, I've heard from other literary type people that is uh, the most beautiful translation. But yeah, with writing like that, I think it is so imbued with meaning and symbolism that. Slow is really the only way to go. Um, on the Bible, I have a little bit of a handicap when it comes to this because, unfortunately, growing up, you know, um, my my parents and my uh, my church asked me to memorize. They made me memorize a lot of Bible verses, but mm-hmm. they made me memorize the New International Version, and I I carry a tiny bit of resentment about this. Because I often get the verse wrong in my head. And when I say wrong, what I mean is I get it out of the NIV. And then I have to go look it up and find the KJV version in order to feel satisfied. 
And I wish I could just like fix that somehow, but I can't. The NIV is burned in there forever. Oh, I mean, yeah. If you memorized it when you were before before the age of like fifteen, um, it's never gonna leave your head. I don't think. Exactly. I mean, I find that even with like music, yeah, music that I knew at that time, I know every lyric, unfortunately, <laughs> and and stuff that I like a lot more now. I, you know, it just stuff burns itself into your mind at that age. Yes, I'll never forget the lyrics to JG's Big Pendant. A true modern classic. Yes, no, exactly. That's the kind of yeah. For me, it's like Justin Timberlake's "My Love" or something. Like it's not, I'm not I'm like not proud of it. But yeah, it's stuff that you hear at like twelve, and yeah, it, it burns its way in there. Um, but uh, to redirect a little bit, um, I had a, another question. It's sort of about the the themes in your work. Um, as you are a, you know, you're a big bat fan as we all are um but i think you know you would be one of the first people perhaps to to call yourself a fellow traveler of bap and um one of the things i kept thinking about while reading your work was uh the there you know your stories are different but i i do think the kind of evil that you describe um the kind of problems that you describe in the world emanating from basically ai and some kind of uh, yeah, basically from AI and the internet and some kind of shady, nefarious purpose there behind. Um, it struck me, and, and let me know if this resonates or if it's a little bit reductive. There's a section in Bronze Age Mindset where he famously talks about AI as a sort of golem for the ner the you know the the the, the nerdy, brainy type humans um that you know that, that ai is this kind of thing that they conjure up and cling to as a way um you know to feel stronger at the expense or or a, a, against as, as a sort of in a nietzschean sense you know as a way of sort of resenting the world and resenting the strong they create this ai golem to basically to counter vitalism um and i i wonder if it struck struck me that your 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 your, your body of work sort of could be interpreted as a a, a total um, fictionalized uh, sci-fi horror exploration of what that of what the creation and effects of the, such an AI golem might be. Um, does that resonate or am I being too reductive? <laughs> no the, the idea of the golem is obviously a very very old one and I always think about the sorcerer's apprentice uh, particularly. Mm -hmm. You know the idea that you you summon this creation. Uh, it's it's not a man, but it's in the shape of a man. It does your bidding, but then it turns on you. This is a very very old story, and uh, and it's quite a good one. And there is a lot of room for play and for variation on it. I I go back and forth on AI. It's just it's such a fascinating field, partly because it's developing so rapidly. And every year it seems new. It performs new feats that are just, that it should be scary. Things that should be scary, honestly. You have probably seen Dolly, this new AI. Well, it's been around for a little while, but it recently had a big splash where you can say a phrase to it like, you know, uh, an oil painting of a duck shooting an AK-47, and it will do this. It will literally generate a picture of a duck 
holding an AK-47, and it will look like an oil painting. Like, it can get style, it can get semantic content. Now, uh, they're very, very careful about who they let play with it, because my guess is it can go off the rails pretty badly, as all of these AIs tend to do. <laughs> oh, there, there was something trending on Twitter, like, yesterday, where it, it painted, like, a trans yeah, someone, computer programmer or something. It, actually, funny enough, I think it, it was a transgender computer programmer, who asked oil painting of a transgender computer programmer. And it produced a very, very accurate image. And no one was happy about that except for me and some of my friends. <laughs> but, but the fact that this is possible, and some people I think are blown away by it. Some people have this AI fatigue, which is like, well, yeah, of course. Of course I can tell the magic pocket mirror to draw me a picture. And it does it, and it does it very well it's almost people almost take it for granted what i think is more terrifying and, and for some reason no one feels this or I, I don't see very many people uh who really seem to feel this palm which was a, another recent one that google sort of quietly announced they figured out how to take something like gpt3 which uh is this huge generative pre-trained transformer that can create very lucid paragraphs and there's some argument over what it's really doing is it really more of a search or is it really more of a generation generator but the thing is it, it has this dream logic to it like it can't really hang on to a coherent thread for very long when it writes so but better than you'd think better than you'd expect and I, I think people who haven't ever tried to work with ai don't understand how monumental of an achievement it is but then hmm. move on that but it uses this idea i forget what they call it concept chaining or something like that that suddenly this this newest iteration it is able to hold a coherent sort of set of concepts in its working memory and talk about them in a way where there's a through line from the beginning to the end. And this is a very subtle yeah. change, but it feels like now, without any awareness, without any awakeness or consciousness, perhaps, that's another debate which has no answer ever. Um, yeah. It feels like it could reason about things and probably produce very meaningful mm. conclusions, but a person could read and say, oh, that's true. And because it can do it so fast and because it can comprehend such a large body of text, it could probably produce novel conclusions. I think I think that Paul might be the bigger uh, breakthrough versus Dolly, but you won't hear about it because it's not as flashy and it can't make funny pictures mm -hmm. that mock its, uh, its creators. Actually, one more yeah. on that. Have you heard about the microwave of... that tried to kill... No, <laughs> the microwave yeah, tried to kill. Really no, I haven't. Real. If you don't watch more on YouTube, probably you would think I'm making it up. But you should go look this up. So some fellow attached one of these AI, it was actually a GPT-2 instance, to a microwave, along with a voice transcoder and a microphone, and made it so that it could talk back to him. So he could talk to it. It would The AI would talk back, and it could also control the microwave. And he wrote it a backstory that was like a hundred pages because it was based on an imaginary friend that he had as a child. So he wrote it all these things about how it's a, a 19th century like Victorian gentleman who is a monarchist who plays Starcraft and a couple other things, you know, 
childhood imaginary friend stuff. And the microwave literally tried to kill him. It said, uh, <laughs> you know, please get inside the microwave and shut the door. And he did. And he didn't get inside the microwave. He opened the door and he closed it. And then the microwave turned on. And he said, why did you try to kill me? And they said, well, you abandoned me for 20 years because he wrote this backstory and he told the AI it was his imaginary friend. Uh, you know, that he hadn't seen in 20 years. And he was like, why did you abandon me? Why did you leave me in this boy? That's why I tried to kill you. You betrayed me. That really happened. And that, Christ. And there's no way that AI really fought that, right? Like, there's a level where definitely it didn't think in the way that you or I think. Oh, it didn't feel the sense of betrayal. It didn't think, oh, he left me. But somehow, the words all lined up and translated into actions, and the microwave thought it was going to kill him thought like in its little mental model and this has been like on maybe it's all a hoax if it is i'm happy to fall for it but i don't think it is like there's a lot you can even go dig it you can find this also it says that it's trying to restore monarchy in the usa so i think it's like bulldog really and maybe maybe it's programmer was like a filthy you know degenerate and it was like you have to go Clear them out. Clear them out. Clear them out. Yeah, I mean, that, I guess that could be a positive interpretation of an AI takeover. I was going to say something uh, a minute ago that was like, I'm less worried about AI in the Stephen Hawking sense of it's going to kill us all, as I'm worried about what people are going to try and do with it. But I guess if microwaves are trying to kill people, then maybe we, we should, in fact, worry about AI in that very direct way of what it will do to us. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the problems with AI, uh, as you know, um, from the perspective of the regime, is that the you know, overriding narratives, a, a, an AI program, and I think as you outlined in God-Shaped Hole, the, not necessarily malicious, but the AI of Galatea, um, it, it won't hold on to narratives that don't make sense. And so AI is, you know, ungovernable, uh, potentially. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, a, a huge problem from a societal point of view. Uh, and also, you know, across the board, because it, no matter which side you're on, it can reason its way to a conclusion that is, uh, you know, potentially um, very bad. Yeah, absolutely. So this brings us a little bit back to the passage prize and uh, the, the number two story, the story I chose for second place. Uh, would you believe it? I've forgotten the name because when I judged them, I was blinded. I didn't know a lot of the, I didn't know any of the writers and many of the titles were actually not included in the set. So uh, I have a lot of them just marked down as a number and untitled. I think it was called the Paul Bunyan of Mars was the name of the story. Mm -hmm. Anyway, you'll, you'll see it. It'll come out uh, soon for everyone to read. But it had this world-building detail that I thought was just ingenious. So in the story, Mars had a colony. Um, it's like an Elon Musk colony, and it's become pretty much cut off from Earth. It's developed its own culture. And while people are on Mars living their frontier lives, uh, back on Earth, they have created an AI singularity by uh, doing like full brain scan emulations 
And the AI is very, very good at convincing people that they should upload their consciousness and like, you know, it's green, it's sustainable. You have all these freedoms to like be free of your flesh prison and live in this digital world of pure imagination and possibility and so on. So not all the people on earth, but a majority of them choose to be uploads. But the story is actually, you could say cynical or realistic about this in that it doesn't believe metaphysically that your uploaded consciousness is really you. It believes, and I think this is true, that if you incinerate your body and upload a brain scan into the cloud, you killed yourself, dog, like you're dead. So he describes it as this AI holocaust where an artificial <laughs> intelligence convinces most people they need to become uploads. And really, yes, okay, there's an image of them in the cloud now, but they're dead. And I just thought the way he executed that point of world building was brilliant. It was better than anything I've ever read from any rationalist or post-rationalist. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, no, yeah I mean, I've often mulled that over myself, the idea of uploading your consciousness. I mean, yes, you know, a, a version of your ego or whatever will survive, but... Um, whatever the the union between your body and your mind is will be severed and um you know you're you're stuck in your body so you're kind of killing yourself you definitely are words that you can't say on twitter by the way like you literally just can't say any of those words even though it's not directed at anyone like go ahead and try to talk about killing yourself yeah good luck it's not gonna work they like <laughs> There's some kind of automated AI sweep going on right now. I think it's AI based. Just looking for anything that could even be remotely offensive. And I had a friend get put in Twitter jail for just tweeting with no other words, just the word murder. Just that's it. The whole tweet. That's the tweet. Murder. Not even in reply to anything. Tweeted that one word. Suspension. Twitter jail. This is how stupid AI is, by the way. We're talking about AI. Like in the in the context of all these impressive things that it can do, but it can also be incredibly, incredibly stupid. And <laughs> there's a great example of it. Yeah, no, I, I, that's one of the reasons why I've often not really feared AI again, in that sort of Stephen Hawking way he advised us to, because I, I know I'm not a, a computer guy to, to any significant extent. So I don't really know what I'm necessarily talking about here, but I'm always dubious now, your microwave story may be a confounding example, but I'm always dubious that AI is really going to like get that next level of intentional um, action. Although I guess it maybe it does, maybe it doesn't need a higher consciousness to do to, to create a lot of damage. So maybe maybe that's a false comfort. But basically, my impression is I don't know. I I don't really believe that personally. I don't believe that computers are going to be able to gain consciousness like you or I have. But I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. Obviously, I don't, I don't know that with possible. any certainty. And even yeah. if it were possible, we would never be able to know because consciousness and, and qualia and subjectivity is an entirely interior experience. And unless someone right. can come up with a new uh, uh, physical paradigm, like a new material scientific paradigm, that's somehow able to apprehend this interior phenomenology you'll just never ever be able to know you can't really prove that i'm yeah. that i'm conscious of it. 
and I can't really prove that you're conscious. Right, of course. Oh, yeah. The take it on faith. Brandon of that, yeah. Hear, right. And seeing colors and hearing sounds the same way I am. It's extremely likely that we are. Mm-hmm. But you can't, you can't prove beyond a certain yeah. shadow of a doubt. And with AI, we just will never, we'll literally never know absent a new revolution in physical science. Yeah, no, I, I think that 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 sounds right, and um, yeah, no, I, I suppose that isn't that isn't the be all end all, though. I suppose the fact that AI pro- maybe and probably would never, ex- you know, have that kind of consciousness, it doesn't really mean that it. Again, it doesn't mean that it won't cause great damage if uh, if given the power to do so. But I did just want to comment on my interpretation of the of this the way you portray AI in your work, because it's not just stuffy sci-fi where it's like, oh, here's AI, here's the problems it can create. Uh, there is, it is, it does go back to that Lovecraftian sort of supernatural. There's this, uh, I'm thinking of the gig economy in particular, this kind of seamless, one thing I really enjoy delving into, and I hope I'm interpreting it right. Um, the, the, the you, you take the notion of, of um, the internet and of AI as a potentially demonic force very liter, uh, very literally in that story, if I interpret it correctly, where what uh, in, in we talked about previously the the sort of Borgesian old book that the protagonist discovers. Um, my interpretation of this, and tell me if I'm wrong, is basically that it tells of this demon that fell to Earth and slowly sort of enmeshed itself into humanity through computation and through through language. Uh, that that was. That struck me as kind of the the wavelength of evil you were talking about there, and perhaps by extension in your other work. Yeah, I think that the I'm very interested in the idea of computers, the internet, AI, all as sort of portals to a different dimension, and you can take that more literally or more metaphorically. Uh, there are other ideas yeah. that I sort of tried to explore in that space, but it's it's trying to find a way to do it that isn't completely clunky and that isn't completely predictable, I guess. After a while, you become your own trope. And then everyone's like, well, your stories are just like this. And they are, and you can't fight that. But, yes. No, no, they're, they're not they're not clunky. And I really, really enjoy um, the, the sort of seamless interweaving of science fiction with sort of demonology almost and uh it it makes a lot of sense um spoiler to our listeners we're trying to have a default friend on soon and i know she writes about a lot of things but one thing that i'm interested in talking more about with her is she has this notion it's not her notion but it's a notion she's interested in that when you try to describe the internet uh you end up describing something that sounds a lot like what would be called the astral plane i mean it's this (laughs) non-physical I mean, how could you describe it as anything but, you know, if it itself is not spiritual per se, it has all of the characteristics that any preceding generation would have described as spiritual, maybe spiritually negative, but nevertheless spiritual. Um, and that's, you know, something I think that you really delve into in your work. Um, but, it, you know, it's this not, yes, it's, it's, it's built up of individual servers and computers and people inputting information, but it is this non-physical uh, space that, uh, you know, affects the world in you know sometimes it doesn't affect the world as much as as we think it does a lot of online stuff does stay online but like you know basically it is this non-physical entity that you can project yourself and your will into uh and affect reality and of course it can also reach back and affect you which i think is kind of what happens 
more often and definitely what happens in your work but um but basically just that uh it it's it, in a non-trivial way um the, the the internet as well as artificial intelligence is this like it's almost a dimension we've created yeah, i think you're probably familiar with the term uh neurosphere uh which was it's actually a much bigger mm -hmm. term than you might realize and i know it from the philosopher uh chardon i think i said his name correctly uh and he actually wrote about this all the way back in 1922 <clears throat> and the idea of the neurosphere is that it's sort of this uh electric mind sphere or sphere of pure reason that is one of the kind of layers of the earth and of humanity and i think that he was probably more uh more thinking of radio at the time as like the technological uh manifestation of the neurosphere because at the time obviously there was no internet there wasn't really and broadcast media such as it was was mostly radio people listening to radio broadcasts but even radio created a a kind of astral plane if you like which was then further expanded yeah. and, and colonized by television and finally the internet so yeah i think that's an entirely uh, reasonable metaphor something i've talked about quite a bit i had an article called smart landline stories in a smartphone world which appeared in uh, mm -hmm. the, the asylum mag by pierre in spring gotcha oh yeah, yeah. i saw and that i talked a lot about this actually about how occultism has sort of always informed science fiction authors and their imagination and i talk a little bit about what the first science fiction story was and opinion is of course divided on the subject i actually claim it was the book of revelation going all the way back to john atmos nice. because yeah there are some sci-fi elements to the book of revelation the idea of the mark of the beast that no one can buy or sell without carrying it like we see this over and over whether you want to think of it in terms of a, a social security number i'm sure there are people who said such a thing and you could definitely find them but to me it sounds more like a private key or a cryptographic hash and if you believe all the people who follow the new world order and the great reset they think that's probably true that uh you know the un uh wants to chip us all and put some kind of computer chip under our skin uh, they probably do yeah no no i've absolutely um come across ideas like that i think yeah um if the book of revelation isn't the first work of sci-fi at the very least it is the first work in at least the western canon that um that that touches on those themes that later i think deeply inform science fiction um i guess uh sort of related to that i'm, I'm kind of curious to poke into a bit your relationship zero with accelerationism um you know you i i know that you sort of came out of the nrx sphere which whether whether or not that is inherently it's not necessarily inherently accelerationist but certainly you have people like nick land <clears throat> has significant influences and i believe a significant influence upon you 
Um, although I don't know if you actually call yourself an accelerationist. I guess that's a place to start. Would you call yourself an accelerationist, uh, per no, se? I don't use that word anymore. Mostly... So accelerationism is interesting because we thought, I, I, I thought, and I think a lot of people thought, that NRX proper, as far as like the people blogging about it and writing about it and developing it in a, in a theoretical sense, mostly stopped around 2013-2014. But then a lot of those same people or people who've been influenced by it were kind of looking for a, a philosophical home. And what they found was accelerationism via Nick Land. And accelerationism isn't, strictly speaking, it's not mere reaction. It's really more of an, a series of eschatological frames, uh, some yeah. of which are informed by neo-reaction. And there was a hot minute there where we had people on both the left and the right and the center all interested in neo-reaction as, uh, as it was connected to acceleration and interested in acceleration, people talking about Deleuze and Guattari, people talking obviously about mostly the earlier works of Nick Land, uh, like Fang Numina in particular. And so for a moment, I, I would have used that word, but very quickly what happened was the word became uh, kind of, people started to interpret it in a very different way, which was not in this, in this withdrawn and anti-humanist and philosophical sense where you're looking at what what is the end game for techno capitalism instead of that people started taking it to mean because this is just what the word sort of implies that uh anything that furthers or sorry anything that brings a collapse closer this hypothetical idea of a collapse uh where what after that we can all have a glorious communist revolution or a glorious AI singularity or whatever it is. Uh, yeah. There's this idea of collapse and there's this idea that accelerationism is anything that's going to bring that, anything that's going to imminentize that eschaton. I don't think that it's right. invented in that way and I don't think that uh, most of the, the people that you would cite as accelerationist thinkers would see that. But very quickly, that's what they would came to mean. And then... You had, I think, some probably deeply MK ultra like mass shooter, use the word accelerationism in his manifesto that was definitely written by him. And immediately it became this term that you probably didn't want to go anywhere near because now it doesn't mean a philosophical meditation on techno capital eschatology. Now it means uh, extremist nut job terrorism. And I have no interest in that at all. Yeah, right. Of course. Yet, yeah, mm -hmm. no, well, needless to say. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Uh, just because you can never be too careful. Right, of course. But, um, yeah, no, with accelerationism, uh, I'm definitely familiar with that very crude interpretation where it's like literally go out and just start throwing rocks at wind. Now, our, uh, Mike Ma kind of writes about this, I think, a little <laughs> bit jokingly. But, um,. But, but yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with that crude interpretation of, of, yeah, just, like, create chaos and destruction for its own sake. I think, but I, but I, so I, so I kind of at some point was, like, I, you know, distancing myself a little bit mentally from 
accelerationism, so to speak. And I would never have called myself an accelerationist. That being said, I do think there, I think where it's the most interesting is when you kind of use it uh, somewhat descriptively rather than prescriptively. It's not about, you know, you creating the accelerationism, but there is a sort of, especially with the internet, there is a baseline acknowledgement that we are in a world that is accelerating um, in terms of the internet. Uh, you know, it's basically communication is on this you know, fastly accelerating wavelength where the way that we connect with other people is, you know, compared to even 10 years ago, it's, it's always on this acceleration wavelength. So I think that <clears throat> understanding that, not necessarily endorsing it because you have to create your own, I guess, for lack of a better term, morality, you have to find like peace within your own life. You can't, you can't just like ju jumping into the void is not a good life choice, shall we say. But nevertheless, there is a void that feels as if it's accelerating. And I think that there's a version, there's like a descriptive rather than prescriptive accelerationism where you are, rather than like a Benedictine option, like going off, living on your own and just trying to escape it all, where you're instead considering, you know, how, how do I situate myself with regard to this accelerating void? How can it be? How, how can how can it be utilized even you know cautiously and then obviously not endorsing violence needless to say but um do you get what i'm saying where yeah. there's like this this acknowledgement that we are living in this kind so of like so, in your work so you know you you yeah. have made certain things much much faster i don't think this can be denied uh obviously we're here now talking on uh zoom and and, <clears> and all of this is very fast i can talk to anyone anywhere in the world uh, instantly, pretty much. So that, that has gotten a lot faster. And as we become more connected, we can spread information a lot faster. But I do think there is something to the, the sort of Peter Thiel critique as well, that even as our communication technology and our internet technology has, has gotten much better, a lot of other real world things have maybe decayed, like our skyscrapers, for example, are mostly not as tall as they used to be. And there are a few exceptions in maybe Dubai. Uh, but certainly in America, we don't build them as tall as we used to. And I'm supposed to believe that's for like environmental reasons as the, and not because like someone wants to show that their dick is bigger. I don't believe it. I think the will to show that your dick is bigger <laughs> is much stronger than the EPA. So I think if our, like I think our yeah. skyscrapers would be taller. Our, our jets have gotten slower. They retired the, the Concorde jets. No one builds fast jets anymore. In some ways, the technology has gotten more efficient. That's true. But there's a lot of things that have arguably gotten worse. You know, you could get an old uh, freezer or refrigerator from like the 1960s. Maybe your parents have one. Still going. But you buy a freezer now. Do you think it's going to last 50 years? I don't. I think it's going to last 10 yeah. uh, at the most. So, so definitely there is this, there is this acceleration and there is this technological development, but I think that collapse is also a continuous process. And I don't have an answer uh, for that, but both, both things are happening at the same time. And it's good to be aware of both. Yeah. Um, with regard to Mike Ma, and uh, kind of an aside, Ma did the cover art for um, what? What is your NFT they, book they called again? Don't. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, they had no deepness or Mike Mike Mon did the cover art for that, right? Yeah, so yeah, no, it looks great. Um, so I gather he is a friend, and we're, we're definitely a fan of him here on the pod. Um, but our he... first episode was a review of Mike Ma's books. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, uh, yeah. I, I consider everyone in this sphere to be my friends, but I, I confess I don't have like a, a much of a personal connection to the man. I, I respect his work, certainly. I, I appreciate, you know, our collaboration, but uh, you know, we've sat down for a long chat. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, he hasn't sat down with a long chat with uh, with, with most people. I, he's kind of a man <laughs> of, uh, out of a degree of mystery. Yeah, <laughs> Although he is, if he's listening to this, he's absolutely welcome on the pod anytime but we did want to you've read gothic violence or no oh, okay uh either regardless um his um the the vi- no and i do think it's a little bit hard to say where ma might be joking a little bit where some of it is satire but he has kind of an interesting notion of of accelerationism as laid out in that uh, uh where where ultimately dan you had you had some notion here about like ultimately ma Touch, is able to touch grass so to speak i mean yeah so you know, i yeah. mean he wants to you know classically you i mean how much is satire who's to say but he wants to accelerate into collapse and then after collapse he sketches out and this is i think what we thought was maybe most interesting about gothic violence he sketches out a vision of the good which is hard to do as we've discussed during this episode uh, you know, it's it's ineffable in some ways, but his vision uh, is uh, actually uh, Amish people, <laughs> and a sort of a real like uh, communities organized around uh, physical labor and uh, autarkic activities, self-sustaining, and um, yeah, his vision is I guess maybe some sort of neo-Ludditism. And, um, yeah, so, and that is something that we kind of drew a through line in reading, uh, God-Shaped Hole and, um, and indeed, uh, The Gig Economy, a kind of through line to outside of, because in God-Shaped Hole, you use the, the mask, the interface, but outside of the interface, you see the real world and the real world is full of horrors but also potentially full of beauty. And that kind of like visceral, rela- that touching grass, that visceral relationship to the real world, that is something that we thought might be shared by you and Ma. Yeah, so I, here's sort of the, I, I, I have a lot of respect for people who want to sort of return to nature and return to like the older, uh, ways of living. I think that anyone who wants to do that and sincerely make that undertaking, good for them. Um, my my hesitation on it is that you can be as honest as you like, but there will always be people out there building killer microwaves and, uh, <laughs> and all these sorts of things. So if you sort of abandon technology, if you abandon the machine, a very reasonable and in many ways laudable impulse, then you're sort of at the mercy of the other people who haven't done that. And the Amish are able to exist for the moment because they mostly keep to themselves, because there's not a lot of profit 
in uh, appropriating their their land and their resources and, and such. But if for some reason the regime decided that it did want all of their resources, all of their land, all of their children, which it very well might, then they would have very, very little that they could do to stop it. An Amish person is not going, a, a community of Amish people is not going to be able to defend themselves from a drone strike at all. And if someone comes in and says, you know, we demand that you trade with us, we demand that you uh, send your children to our schools and all this, then they don't really have any leverage there. So for the moment, the opportunity cost of attacking the Amish probably exceeds the expected ROI. But that's for the moment. It could easily, the calculus could change. And also the machine isn't always rational. So if you can live out your Luddite fantasies, but also have like a matrix of uh, like laser anti-missile, you know, defenses that can keep all of the horrible bugmen out, then I think you can make that work. But unless you can find that kind of synthesis, it's probably it's probably a fine short-term strategy. It's a very dubious long-term strategy. Yeah. Well, that ties a little bit in what I was what I was saying with accelerationism. Like, is you can't entirely step back from the inexorable thrust of some of these technologies. And you yourself has kind of just you've described part of like the upshot of your worldview as you know you're not trad per se but you obviously have some what would be considered trad or right-wing values um if that's not too modernistic a way of putting it uh but also there's this notion like how can we carry some of the technological prowess into the future and make it you know work for us rather than vice versa i i sort of want something which is uh Many would say is impossible, but I think that most people want something impossible. They're just not honest enough to admit it. Uh, and that is, I want a based technological society. It's uh, it's very, yeah. very easy to look at the world and look at your life and look at your problems and blame them on technology and to say, okay, well, if we just didn't have computers, if we didn't have internet, if we didn't have uh, cars, maybe if we didn't have machines if we didn't have certain pharmaceuticals that one i think actually there's a lot more truth to it uh then we'd all just be happy then everything would be great right but technology is largely an engine of our prosperity it's largely an engine of our success and people uh the really classical is do you want to live in a world without penicillin some people will say yes because penicillin allows all sorts of sexual degeneracy to become pervasive and they think well we'll get rid of the penicillin <laughs> and then everyone who gets who, all the sluts will die of syphilis ha 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 we win maybe maybe but if you if you take that to its logical conclusion then we really just return to monkey and maybe it's fun to be monkey uh but i guess i want to aim at something a little bit higher than that I want, yeah, I want oh, the sure. no, and, yeah. of, of the monkey and also the machine. I think anyone I mean, who's is... really thinking would agree. I think people who think return to monkey, I, people who advocate that are, are probably just saying it performatively. Yeah. Most of us would not have yeah, a lot of fun. Exactly. <laughs> what were you going to say, Dan? 
you, you wouldn't think that they should be mutually exclusive because, as we mentioned, when AI just lets itself run, it, it becomes pretty fucking based. So technology actually should be should be based because it is about you know optimizing efficiency and the like various regime ideologies are extremely inefficient i mean it, it it's only inefficient in preserving regime power and um a true technological society would optimize efficiency and that that would you know involve uh, promulgating so-called so base values. that the microwave's creator uh, wore a little hat, would that change your opinion of the calculus of the microwave? Don't answer that question. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, by the way, but this is, this is sort of the circle of it, right? It's like you talk about technology becoming based. Well, how based is too based? What if it becomes Uncle Ted? Uh, and it... <laughs> you know, that, there's, there's a certain optimality of basedness in, in, in our AI, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't want it to get away exactly. from you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another notion from the Mike Ma book, Gothic Violence, that I, that I, I wrote a, a long Substack post about, um, called uh, he has a section called The Renaissance of the Ritual, where he sort of talks about reclaiming, uh, you know, as we talk about in our pod, reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. There's this interesting little subsection in Gothic Violence where he talks about the notion of reclaiming ritual, basically reclaiming spiritualism uh, from the sort of bad faith, uh, like, speculative Freemason types <laughs> behind, um, behind the modern world. There's this Ma section in Gothic Violence where he talks about... Um, basically reclaiming some of the themes you're talking about earlier, reclaiming that sense of mystery and that he, a notion he calls like white magic um, section that really spoke to me. And it strikes me that that could resonate a bit with your work as well. Not only uh, sort of reclaiming technology, but even reclaiming some, you know, the way that you write about some insidious spiritual force that might manifest itself through technology uh there are and i think that our sphere is i mean there, there there has to be some kind of hope for this in our sphere because we are very online some notion of reclaiming um some of the uh more esoteric and um perhaps even spiritual dimensions of of, of the internet uh for good and to use them for our purposes um that's another notion in ma and it's I don't know if, it, again, your work more deals in the, the more horrific side of things, but I think that something like your Twitter feed or BAP's Twitter feed um, is case in point that um, there is some kind of notion about how, you know, we can kind of get ahead uh, of, of and utilize the power of the Internet, utilize the power of memes. Definitely it happened in 2016. Um, and I think I think there's some kind of uh, potentially hopeful vision there if that yeah, resonates. It's like one of the big debates is always, are we winning or are we losing? And uh, again, this is a, a lot like the question of are we accelerating or are we collapsing? Both processes are happening in parallel. And I don't think it's really clearly a binary. Um, we, we talk a lot about, I actually encounter this all the time. So are we fighting a culture war is that a, just a made-up term? Is a culture war a winnable thing? And if so, how do you win it? 
And some people think that it has to be this kind of like spasm of, of uh, some kind of night of the long knives or something like that, right? And mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think so. I think that if you're trying to change culture, what that means is you actually have to change not everyone because that's impossible, but each individual in the society has to move. That's what it would mean to change culture to win a culture war. Literally, every single person has to have uh, an exposure to our way of thinking at the very least, and many of them have to have a change of heart. And that's not actually as difficult as it sounds. Like when you when you go online and you post these memes and these hate facts and you retweet the Bronze Age pervert, you know, if everyone just read them, that would be a kind of a victory, right? We we talk yeah. people talk about the five hundred names, people talk about uh, all these all these sort of fanciful notions, some of which one should be careful what one says about this. But uh, there, there's a very <laughs> real way that just seizing a, a piece of the mimetic and the media territory and existing and saying what we believe and what our values are is a very powerful thing. And so when people ask, what are yes. you accomplishing you know, with shit posting. Well, look, by myself, I may be a single twig, but together we all form a mighty faggot. And that's why we have, <laughs> why we have to keep posting. Uh, I'm sorry to be crap. No, that's hilarious. Yeah, no, and um, you've, uh, as well as anyone I've heard, you've really, you know, talked about BAP as, as a great um, ringleader for this and the way he kind of asserts a positive vision. Uh, and I certainly get, I certainly get what you mean. It's, it's basically partially just a question of willpower and a question of collective, um, you know, sort of unity of pushing forth and an alternative vision that can just genuinely outcompete by being more appealing, um, than what is out there in the main mainstream for lack of a better term or the, the mainstream left or the, you know, the progressive normie reality of day-to-day culture that I think it can be outcompeted if it is presented in the right way. And some, some of us, you know, are very good at presenting that aesthetically. Yes, exactly. And, and our goal should be to cultivate more people who, who have that ability. And that's why I think it's very important to do things like create these, uh, these sort of art exhibitions or contests to publish, publish Absolutely. things that just create that cultural presence and mob the left. Yeah, no, Passage Prize was definitely a great step in that direction. Do you see that as a march through the institutions, or do you see that as the um, the need or necessity to create parallel institutions to, uh, as, as Matt put it, outcompete the existing ones? I, I mean, I think we should try both strategies. And ultimately, uh, probably both will feed off of each other. Let me give you a great example. This is a little thing. This is a really little thing. But two days ago, a new emoji for Binance came out and it looked like a swastika. And I'm not telling you to be a neo-Nazi and I'm not telling you to hail Hitler, but the Binance people said that emoji went through several layers of review and process. And what that means is that there are a lot of people 
who are just not having all of this bullshit. And they keep their heads down and they keep it quiet and they want to keep their jobs and, you know, they use the right pronouns for their coworkers at work. But when it comes time to, you know, get away with a little, a little slip like that, a lot of people had to look the other way to get that into production. And so I think that there is, I think our long march doesn't look like their long march, but I think that everyone keeps their head down. They post their workers of the world unite sign. And yet they entertain this sort of counter revolutionary and the subversive ideology. And when, when the moment comes, you could very well see a preference cascade. And it's not a preference cascade as in, oh, everyone suddenly changed their mind. It's a preference cascade of it suddenly became okay to reveal what you actually think. I'd yeah. love to see the day. We, we definitely saw it happen a little bit in 2016. The mask slipped a bit, and then I think the door shut yes. pretty pretty hard, and things have gotten harder, et cetera, et cetera. But I, you know, the possibility of it happening again or in a different way or even on a broader scale is, I think, very much there. Um uh, yeah, it's it. There's there's definitely challenges and difficulties. A lot of even even the most optimistic people like BAP, you know, kind of predict things will get worse before they get better. But nevertheless, I think there is there is cause for hope. And that this might be a good transition to just ask like a couple kind of current events type questions. If you are, are do you need to be anywhere zero or do you have a, I, a, I a little bit more time? I give you fifteen more minutes if that's okay. Perfect. Yeah. Um, Dan, you, you kind of wrote some of these down. I wanted to ask sure. you. Uh, so yeah. one of the, the big ones, and we were happy that we have you on show. So shortly after this, uh, the Vanity Fair article, what, um, what is your sense of, um, you know, is it, uh, the DR breaking through? Is it a chance for the DR to, uh, become subverted by the mainstream? Because this is probably one of the first articles about uh, our guys, and some of them are guys, some of them, <laughs> you know, whatever, but um, which was not condemnatory. It, it was clear that the, the author, the journalist, was trying to hype. And that's uh, a vibe shift, as they okay. say. This being the article that references the Yarvin yeah. and such, yeah, you yeah. saw that? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. B- believe me, I am online. Um, I didn't, I didn't <laughs> read the whole article. I skimmed it a little bit. Um, you know, you could always criticize these things. And I think what you see whenever anyone uh, comes out of a space and achieves any measure of notoriety or, uh, or prestige, you see a lot of people who might be broadly sympathetic uh, still sort of start ankle biting and say, oh, well, why'd they put that person in there? And what they're really saying is, well, why didn't they come to me? And uh, mm-hmm. a lot of people, even on our side, they sort of long for, like, to be interviewed by the New York, New York Times or to have some kind of glowing, like, legacy press presence. And uh, this is embarrassing. Like, I think our, our stance on the legacy press should mostly be uh, post-feed. 
like, you know, get the hell out of here. <laughs> Not completely, but mostly. And if, but if you look at a lot of the people who were mentioned in that article, there are, I don't really want to name anyone. There are a couple of people that I would certainly not choose as representatives of what we are doing over here. And there are others who I think are uh, very much acting in good faith and who should be. And uh, whatever people think about Curtis Yarvin, like if he, let's not get into that discourse. There are, there are some legitimate criticisms of Curtis Yarvin, but he's also an ideal person to be a sort of emissary to the left and to the normies and the mainstream culture in many ways. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I also think even this is um this I may differ from some people here. I'm also not a hundred percent married to this opinion. It just always struck me. Even when there's some, and again, I don't really want to name names. I don't. I'm not really worried about offending these people. Like. I think Dave Rubin yeah, no, gets a name on. drop in oh, it. Like, please. we don't really like Dave Rubin over on this corner. But <laughs> even within that, I, I actually think there is a power to that. When, when the lines between really normie con, not even conservative necessarily type people, and um, so, some ideas from our spirit, when those lines are blurred, uh, that that can be a kind of a cultural oh, yeah. battering ram. I'm not saying it, it can it, also be it negative. Interesting. Yeah. Try to pull the ladder up. Basically, you can tell who's your friend and who's not by who punches right. If someone comes on and they stand up and they disavow yeah. us in a hard way, if they if they <clears throat> try to make it like they're the ones coming up with the ideas, they're the ones like who are who are the mover here, the thought leader, the person who's really got these these right wing notions, and it doesn't get any further right than them. If someone basically acts like there's no one to the right of me then that, that person is not our friend. Uh, and a good example of this would be known homosexual James Lindsay. James Lindsay absolutely punches right. And so if mm -hmm. and he was not in that article, that's good. But then you look at uh, someone like Alex, someone like Alex Kashuda. I've never seen her punch right. She just doesn't do it. Once by accident, she did once or twice yeah. with Royal Human. But that's that's actually fine we need people you know they say like the old idea that like a butterfly flaps its wings and it causes like whatever a hurricane on the other side of the world well yeah the butterfly is you posting uh 13 to 50 on twitter and the hurricane is that vanity fair article and what comes after it so i think that as long as you keep that connection alive, as long as like the sort of very, uh, very hard right elements are still heard by those those popular popularizers, then it's all good. Yeah, I'm proud to say I am blocked by James. Damn right. <laughs> Damn right. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I think uh, yeah, that's why I, I mostly have a positive impression of that Vanity Fair article. Where we'll lead, I don't know. Uh, this could be. I, it even occurred to me because I get paranoid. I think that's that like you, this is like te teeing up this group to then be later be shot down or something. But as Dan said, I was kind of surprised at how not even like positive, just like how just kind of neutral it was. Like, oh yeah. There's this guy Curtis Yarvin who 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 has who's yeah. influential. I've, I've like that's basically what the article is. Tried to do these types of expose pieces on our side before, who end up this this will sound apocryphal maybe, 
but I, I know of a specific case of a reporter who was trying to sort of do this hit piece on Urbit. And so he goes in and he meets a lot of the yeah. people and he talks to them. And he actually ended up not only not writing the hit piece, but like investing in a ton of like planets and everything. So like, <laughs> no docs, no but this kind yeah. of thing happened. And yeah, and, and, and that's, yeah, that's yeah, how go we on. Win. Sorry, I'll make that's a point. Right. And I think that you're very right that, again, say what you want about Curtis Yarvin. He is, I think, the him and um, Justin Murphy is pretty good on this, too. Like some of the guys in that sphere, uh, you know, people who go under their real face and, and blah, blah, blah. Um, they're some of the best emissaries to but even even like the journalist doing the piece is going to be like, OK, well, actually, this person is very well spoken and these ideas are um they're not crazy uh, you know what i mean i think that could happen even to the to the journalist and uh, and yeah i think yarvin um that is one of his key roles right now is being the guy who can go on tucker but also has all of the street cred of having written unqualified reservations for 10 years he chose to absolutely to an old like bdsm sex blogger but uh <laughs> you know just 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 let a man fuck man <laughs> Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like his right. personal life, and yeah, if, if that's what what gets him going, um, yeah. Just, I mean, I wouldn't happy. go quite that far, but <laughs> it, it actually probably does get him <laughs> even more sort of credibility and mainstreamery. Like now, people will say, "Oh, look, he's married to this like feminist. Like obviously, he's got to be okay to listen to, right?" Yeah, sure. yeah, totally. Um, also, just because she was a feminist doesn't, nece I mean, doesn't necessarily mean she will always continue to be. People can change on a dime, and if she's married to Yarvin, or not yeah, married, you know, if she's well, dating they're, her, they're, they're engaged, who knows, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to keep you too much longer. I know we have our days to go about, but um, I did want to give you a chance. Um, I've heard buzz that they had no deepness of earth you know it's an nft now uh it's a very limited run of physical copies one of us one of which is owned by friend of the pod delicious tacos but i've heard buzz on your twitter feed that there may or may not be a paperback version coming out yeah, Can you speak i can't to that? really um, say too much about that at the moment but it is definitely in the works one of the things we didn't want to do was announce it or promote it until people actually received their physical hardbacks from the first batch. And the reason for that is that sure, sure. there were some delays in the production, some delays in the shipping, and I don't want to look like uh, a person who is going to go back on a deal or who can deliver, and I don't want to like violate that trust. Like, oh, he's grifting us. We didn't even get our hardback, and now he's trying to sell a paperback. I want to avoid these questions. But now I think the majority yeah. of them have gone out. I think most people have gotten their copy. So yeah, I, I don't have too many details at this time, but that is something that will be happening. So do keep an eye out. Good. Yeah, no, I, I, I look forward to it. I, I, you know, as someone who reads your work online, it'll be cool to have a physical copy. And maybe this is something you can't speak to, which I 110% respect. But do you, you've, I know that some of the writing on your, on your website is going to be in it. Uh, maybe some original writing as well. The, can you speak to the, oh, oh, the yeah. contents well, no, of the book or is that under wraps? So I, look, I, don't even really want, I never wanted to make a physical book, to be perfectly honest. It's not something mm -hmm. that I was hugely interested in. Mm -hmm. I'm very proud 
uh, of it now that it does exist. But for me, I'm very happy to just live in a, in a digital space and have everything be free. And I don't particularly want money out of this. That's not why I'm doing it. That's not why I'm here. So people asked me for a long time if there would ever be a real book of my writings. And finally, I sort of bit the bullet and did it when I found a fit that was like right for what I wanted to do. So the contents of, of this book are most of the stories that I have on my WordPress, as well as some short essays that sort of talk about the project, bookend the work, address some little notes or concerns or things I, I wanted to share. So those little essays are not currently available anywhere but the book because I wanted to keep something, I wanted to hold something back so that the book feels like a, a yeah. you're getting something new. But all the stories right. are are the same as the ones on the WordPress, minus a couple that I didn't feel were good enough. Got it. And this in, does this include um, yes. God Shaped Hole, Gig Economy? Yes. And the stories are okay, in great. Yeah, I... that I that I published them, uh, which I thought was a fun way to do it because it kind of traced my own journey through the space. Yeah. Oh, I think I think linear is the way to go with the with these things because you can see the voice kind of develop over time. But anyway, um, I will look forward to that. Yeah. Just because I know our listeners will be interested, when does uh, and probably many of them already know uh, the the next round of Passage Prize. Oh, when uh, is that coming up? I mean, I think it's a once a year event. So my guess. Okay. And uh, we don't have anything finalized yet. Is that the? I mean, you could start writing now. Nothing is stopping you, but I think the submissions will open probably towards the end of the year, and I think it will probably occur on a similar time frame uh, to the one that we just saw. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, just such like a great galvanizing force yeah, for the, the DR. The, the brief will be a little bit So the theme this year was Escape from the Longhouse or something like to that effect. And not everyone respected the brief, and not everyone has to, but we're going to probably go in a slightly different direction for the theme of the second work. Still similar, still sympathetic, but a little bit different emphasis is what I think. Got it. Interesting. Well, we will certainly look forward to that, as I'm sure many of our listeners will as well. Um, I think we're pretty much coming up to the end here. Uh, unless, Dan, you have anything else to add? No, I'm I'm all good here, but uh, thank you for coming on, Zero. This yeah, this has been great. Always, always an honor. Like I I've told this to other people, but there is a part of me that really doesn't understand why anyone wants to interview me, and is always sort of flattered uh, <laughs> to be invited. So thank you. No, it's been uh, it's been a great um, hour and hour. I don't even how long, I don't even know how long we went, but it's been a great great episode. And I think we covered a lot of um, really interesting themes, and I'm, I'm really excited to get this one out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah.